Welcome, everybody, to the Sedge of Mind podcast, where my guest today is the polymath Sean Espion Hargens. We jump into a rich exploration of how exostudies, which is the study of what is outside our normal sense of reality, leads to endo or inner realizations. What is the relationship between inside and outside? And just how psychoactive is the exo view? Sean talks about being constantly defeated by larger views of reality and the importance of right view and opening ourselves to seeing so much more of the world. We're highly contracted beings afflicted by all manner of centricities, all of which are held under the rubric of egocentricity. Exostudies is integral to the path of opening up, in expanding our horizons and potentials into dazzling new dimensions. What is the role of the subtle body, and how many subtle bodies do we have? Are these subtle bodies inside the gross body, outside of it, or both? The relationship of the subtle body to the unconscious mind is explored, and how things like mantra and visualization practice work to transform the subtle body. How about shadow work in relationship to these subtle bodies? Where does Bardo Yoga fit in to exo-studies? And how about the central role of emptiness? Is it dangerous to explore these inner dimensions and states of consciousness? And where does protection come into play? Sean then talks about the Trikaya, or three-body principle of Buddhism, and the interstate commerce that we can open between all three bodies, gross, subtle, and causal. All of the study and practice is really fundamentally about establishing intimacy with reality and creating a kind of united states of consciousness. Our conversation then turns to the psychedelic renaissance taking place and how we can use these agents for healing and holing. Growth occurs through differentiation and integration and opening the aperture of our awareness to encompass this wild cosmos. We live in a multi-dimensional multiverse full of magic and wonder. Exostudy shows us how we can become a meta-person or a super-experiencer and open to these wonders. This is serious edge-of-mind material, sure to leave stretch marks on your mind. Welcome, everybody, to the Edge of Mind podcast, where my guest today is really a dear friend and one of the most innovative, remarkable thinkers on the planet, as far as I can tell, um, Sean Espier and Hargens. This is our second go-around. We're going to elaborate on some of the incredible wealth that we talked about the first time we chatted, plus adding just a ton of really cool stuff. So I'm going to do a very brief um, formal bio, and we're just going to jump right in. So Sean S. Jaren Hargens, PhD, has spent his life developing meta-integral approaches to the fields of ecology, mixed methods research, psychology and consciousness studies, philosophy of science, holistic education and post-capital models of measuring social impact. For the last three years, he's been developing the new field of exo-studies, exploring the implications of anomalous realities and experiences for understanding the nature of reality. Sean is very passionate about developing new meta-views of what it means to be living in a multi-dimensional multiverse. So Sean, welcome, man. It's just like, you're amazing. And it, yeah. you must be, are you a Gemini? I mean, all your neologisms, your word, word 
No, like I'm a Pisces. I just flow into everything. <laughs> it's amazing. So I just want to say a couple of comments about the way I, I um, kind of relate to my um, good friend here um, in, in both a playful and also a very serious way. In, in one way, I, I flashed on it this week is I really like watching Colbert. I, I think Stephen Colbert is amazing yeah. talent. And one of Colbert's favorite guests is uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson. You know, this this time, Carl Sagan of our age. The guy's out there. I mean, the guy's just totally out there. And so Stephen and, and Neil just go off on all this kind of stuff. And so when I have an opportunity to talk about the Dr. Sean, he's my Neil deGrasse Tyson. He's like, not outer space. Now we're talking about like inner space and actually the junction of inner and outer space. And so he's he's absolutely positively my favorite liminal being. In the sense that he doesn't fit. You can't, you can't wrap your mind around this guy. Right. And um, in fact, when I first started exploring his stuff, a mutual friend sent one of his uh, seminal papers, the Wild Cosmos paper. And I I, I read this thing. I read this thing. And, and I, I looked at the date. Is this April Fool's? When was this thing sent? <laughs> and then, you know, April 1st. And so I, I actually, when I first read it, I got a little queasy, almost a kind of a little bit uneasy. And then I realized... This is fantastic. This is a, this is a, uh, I am a Gemini, so I do love playing with words. This is a kind of notion sickness where you were, you were setting into, into um, motion, pulling out the rugs of my reality, sent, sent me flying into space and trying to wrap my mind around this amazing stuff. And so mixing yet another metaphor, you're like a, you're like a cognitive yoga instructor where when I work with you, read your stuff, it's like I'm trying to assume a particular asana, a particular mudra, that it just ain't easy for me. Um, I breathe and I go slow and I stretch. You know, reading you leaves stretch marks on my mind, right? It's just like, give me a break. So yeah. I'm super excited to have you back with us. There's so much stuff I really want to talk about. And uh, big, 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 deep, warm welcome. And, and the first thing, perhaps, Sean, is... Um, to talk about how your exploration of um, exo studies yeah. really applies, how does exo apply to endo? Um, and how, in fact, does it break down the exo endo boundary? Because in the Hermetic tradition, as you know, there's this wonderful teaching as above, so below. Right. Um, Kala Chakra, the king of all tantras, talks about as within, so without. And so when I read your stuff, this is what makes it so mind-bending. It's like, what is he talking about? Is he talking about mind? Is he talking about reality? Is he talking about outer? Is he talking about inner? And so when I step away from it, it has this, this bewildering, hypnotic, magical, kind of iterative fractal effect, right? It's, it's like I'm looking down an infinite fractal with all these self-similar processes and that's what makes it so beautiful because it's like, yes, you are definitely talking about this particular topic, but like inherent within each one of these iterations is this vast multiverse. So maybe let's start with um, uh, the relationship of exo studies to endo studies, the relationship of inner and outer, and how your work in a certain way um, articulates exo. And to me, also dissolves the boundary between inner and outer altogether. You know, like, are we talking about mind? Are we talking about reality? Inner, outer, in, you know, whatever, self, other. So Beautiful. let's let's take that shot, Carson Brown. See where it goes. Yeah, I mean that that's the absolute perfect place to start. Uh, yeah, I use EXO to refer to basically anything that's outside our normal sense of reality, which 
can refer to what's you know literally outside of us in terms of environment, you know, other planets, you know, galaxies, you know, outer space, as well as inner space and what's inside us in terms of our meditative practice, our um, sense of meaning making with our spouse or colleagues. And, and I think, you know, I've always just been really hungry for like, what is the nature of reality? And that led me to Integral because Integral gave a really big map to kind of really contain and think about reality in a really big picture way. And, and then, as you know, it's like Wilbur wasn't enough. I, I wanted to find what, what are the other big picture thinkers out there, right? That, you know, and so I studied the work of Roy Bashkar and Edgar Moran. And it's kind of like, I just couldn't get enough big pictures. And, and then alongside that was my meditative practice. And my meditative practice, I kept having experiences that didn't really even fit with kind of all my Buddhist friends and my diamond heart friends and, you know, and, you know, weren't even the kind of things that Ken wanted to talk about. And, and so it was really kind of, you know, confusing, <laughs> existentially uh, disconcerting. And, and so I started, when I started looking more at the anomalous, you know, like these experiences we have that just don't fit in reality, I just thought, wow, this is where it's at. Like th this, you know, these experiences, these realities, these claims that people make are so weird, so out of the box, so nonsensical. And yet so many people keep making some version of these claims, like, you know, what's going on here? And then I came across Jeffrey Kripal's work, and part of what he does is he frames this up as the paranormal or the anomalous as non-dual sign, yeah. right? And so this is where it clicked for me. I was like, thank you, Jeff. Thank you. You, you, you just helped bridge these two worlds, kind of my, my integral world, my map-making world, and then now my meditative world, my experiential world, my exploration of consciousness world. And, and I just thought, that's it. Like, we're in this process of seeing the grip of materialism, you know, releasing itself on on our, our mainstream culture and our institutions. Now, I suspect that's going to be a couple hundred year process. So it's not like, you know, it's changing anytime soon. But the critiques have been devastating. And, and it, pretty much the writing is on the wall, right? And we're looking for new models. And almost all the models, whether you're looking at panpsychism, you're looking at um, analytic idealism, you're looking at neutral monism or dual aspect monism or, you know, any number of these, you know, interesting metaphysical frameworks, they are all trying to grapple with understanding a much deeper relationship between mind and matter, between inside and outside, between self and other, between past, present and future. Right. And so one of the things that happened for me when I started studying anomalous phenomena, both in my own experience and listening to others, um, I'm a map maker. So I started trying to look for patterns. And one thing that I noticed, and also Jeffrey Kripal's work helped me with this, is that the phenomenon is inherently double. Mm -hmm. It's consistently um, both subjective and objective. It's um, inside and outside. It's mind and matter. It's synchronistic. It's what's happening inside me somehow. It's manifesting external to me. Um, it's, you know, UFOs showing up and leaving physical traces, but not enough to be scientifically convincing. <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, it's like, it's like, you know, you have a precognitive dream and then 
it happens in real time over the next two weeks, right? You know, like, so over and over again, there's these experiences of this framework of what's inside me is separate and different than what's outside me. And the phenomenon keeps challenging that notion. It keeps pulling the rug out from that. And it's basically saying they are much more interrelated than you might imagine. And so when I started looking at what are the themes of doubleness, like in, in all the experience or literature, and not just in the uh, ufological context, I mean, basically psychedelics, near-death experiences, out-of-body experiences, transpersonal meditative experiences, basically any kind of first-person experience of the world being bigger and weirder and more unified than what we normally experience in rational waking state consciousness, several themes emerged. And and so, and and then not surprisingly, these line up with integral theory. <laughs> and, I was, and I was like, and, and I always have to be careful because like, I want to be cognitive of the tendency for me to, to subconsciously force things into the integral framework, right? And so to what extent is that happening versus the integral framework helping to see patterns that are just inherently there in some sense? And so the patterns that I saw were there's this doubleness between inside and outside, mind and matter, between subjectivity and objectivity. So that's one major category of doubleness. And the other category is between self and other, mm-hmm. right? You know, like are these beings that are visiting us in these craft, are they us from the future, right? Or people who channel, they often have, will at a certain point will have the experience that the primary being they channel, they realize and discover is actually themselves in another dimension or a future version of themselves, right? Um, And there's a lot of examples across the literature, you know, where like people can't walking into a room and discovering themselves sitting at the kitchen table, turning and looking at them. So like encountering their doppelganger, essentially, right? And so these are all experiences where something that initially appears as other on some level is self. Now, that's also true for you and I, right? As we as we understand and practice the non-dual traditions and the contemplative traditions, we come to a point to recognize and appreciate that being true just between me as a autonomous being and you as a you know seemingly autonomous being. And then yet at a certain point, you know, we are just different expressions of the same non-dual ground, right? So so even here in, in the contemplative traditions, we talk about self and other, you know, and the illusion of that dissolving. Right, so this is another space of doubleness. The third major category of doubleness that shows up in, in the material that I've looked at is basically between you know time and space, right? That you know past, present, and future are all mixed together, co-arising. The the future's influencing the past, and the past is influencing the future, and they're both influencing the present. And you know, you look at like you know um, Eric Wargo's book, Time Loops, just as one example of this complex ways in which um, you know, or even in out of body experiences, there's often this experience, you know, or near death experiences, or even in transcendental meditative states, right? You know, you know, you go into pure experience where there is no time or no space. Right. And, and then coming out of that and some of the other types of, you know, meditative experiences, it just gets all mixed together. Right. It's not linear in the way we tend to experience it in this mode of, of consciousness. And same with space. Right. You know, it's like people at, report accessing different spaces, different time, you know. And so so the, and, and when you look at the integral model, the four quadrants basically is talking about inside and outside of individuals 
and inside and outside of self and other, and then also the world. So self, other, and world, the big three, are these three major categories of how we organize and relate to our experience. And this phenomenon, largely construed, is undercutting our boundaries in all three of those major domains of, of self, of, you know, like inside, outside, within an individual, self and other, between people, and then just time and space in terms of the world around us. And so it really, to me, is it gets juicy because it's like, okay, now we're talking about the nature of reality. <laughs> and now we're like, we're in a new ball game and, and the old rules just don't seem to apply. And so, and, you know, and we're in this interesting cultural moment where we're looking around trying to find a new story, a new cosmology, a new metaphysical framework that can hold all of this in a more dynamic way. But what's interesting to me is all of those frameworks I talked about, right? Neutral monism, panpsychism, analytic um, idealism, they, none of them are a home run. All of them have issues. <laughs> none of them like completely are satisfying, right? So even kind of our best, you know, efforts by our, our most creative, you know, thinkers on the planet, like, yes, it's a much better approach than our current materialist paradigm. But you can see that, that it, it still doesn't really tend to the complexity and the mystery of all of this. And so to me, that's just exciting. And, you know, and I just find that, Exploring this keeps asking me to let go of my own identities, right? You know, and professionally, personally, you know, like it's embarrassing on some level to say, yeah, I believe in fairies and I've had some experiences that suggest that there are these nature intelligences, right? Or, you know, yeah, Bigfoot, probably, you know, ETs. Yeah, it seems, you know, seems like that's happening, right? You know, like, you know, I have, I have to move a bunch of stuff out of my library because we had a water leak. So I have movers coming in on the weekend and I'm going through this whole process of like, what are they going to think of me when they start moving the UFO books or they start moving the fairy books? You know, like, oh no, those are, those are the kids's. Right? Those aren't mine. Right. And it's so funny that like, I'm even having that conversation with myself because like, I'm a big boy. Like, why can't I just embrace, like, I think reality is super dynamic and we're just starting to get a sense of it. And I've had experiences. Other people have had experiences. So what's the big deal? And yet it is. It's still a big deal, right? And so I'm having to continually transform my own relationship to myself, right? And deal with my own sense of, well, I want to be respectable or I want to be, you know, taken seriously. <laughs> like, um, and yet the more I lean into this and kind of own it, I just find so many people actually respect me more, right? You know, and obviously some people think I've, you know, flown off the handle. You know, you know, it's like there's this joke, uh, you know, the last couple of years, you know, Tom Kern and I created this website, What's Up With UFOs? And when I started sending that out to my integral list, everyone was like, what's up with Sean? <laughs> you know, so it's like, you know, and yet, you know, when you look at what's happening in the UAP space, right, and what the Congress is doing and what the senders and you know, are saying and the quotes that they're going on record with. And it's like, it's like, wow, like, you know, this, this is a serious topic and they're taking it seriously, but no one else is. <laughs> yeah. Again, it's amazing. There's just so much wealth here already, but in the spirit of our, our podcast edge of mind, this is really edgy. This really is the edge yeah. of mind. And, and actually I think about it, what's very interesting to me in my language, Jane, 
is uh, I think a little bit about, about Galileo, right? In his his challenge of the established right. uh, institutions of the day, and basically what he was trying to do was was um, challenge the concentric the, the the centricities that were basically keeping um, the entire Western world, the civilization, so constricted and so contracted. And so, in, in a certain way, you, you know, you're like a modern day. Galileo, and, and I'm sure if you were back then, um, you, you would definitely be living in house arrest, right? I mean, there's no way yeah. because you're, 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 right. you're, 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 you don't fit in, right? You're just I'd be a, burned at the stake, right. Andrew. Exactly. I would be toast. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You wouldn't even be under house arrest. You'd be, uh, you'd be barbecue. But I think this is what's so great about it because, and this is what's a challenge for me, is because sometimes it's not that easy to read. Because it does take me up against my edge, my boundaries, and because I know you and your intellect and your capacity, I, I know this guy just hasn't like lost his mind. I mean, he's really right. talking about something very compelling. And so, you're one of the few readers, and I love to read and study readers who stop my mind. Mm. I'm reading something, and like I come across a sentence, and it's like hard stop. WTF is this guy talking about? And then what I notice is all the stuff coming up with them. The resistance, the dismissiveness, my propensity to what contract away from this degree of openness. And I think that's what people um, are challenged by. Right. Connected to my favorite definition of meditation, I would yeah, say exactly. reality, habituation to openness. And so basically, you're, you're with your exo studies, you're describing a, a world that is so open, that is so big, that, that it challenges the developmental structure of the ego. The ego yeah. doesn't want to go here because there's really no place for personal identity in the cosmos that's this big. So I think um, there's, uh, in addition to the intellectual challenge, I think there's a developmental and emotional psychological resistance yeah. because some people just don't want to grow up. They don't really yeah. want to be this challenged. And so I, I think this is just fantastic. And, and also the, the notion of, so the world, like my friend David Loy wrote a beautiful book, The World is Made of Stories. Mm. Fantastic thing. And there is no the greatest story ever told. There is no greatest story ever told. It's always yeah. the narrative is always continuing to evolve and to challenge. And also someone along these lines, what came into my mind was Wordsworth. Beautiful, beautiful thing. Um, uh, like you said, you're looking within your own body, mind, heart when you're doing this. Wow. You know, it's not just out there contains multitudes. I contain multitudes. Yeah. Yeah. So that's what's so beautiful about this. We start to realize this is so opening. It's so, it challenges all our concentricities, our, our centricities, period. Open, open, open. And we realize, as you talk about the multi-dimensional multiverse. Yeah. So uh, to me, it's just like, you know, it's not easy. Um, it challenges me in a really powerful way. Sometimes it irritates me because no. it doesn't fit. But that's that's where the rub is, like Almas, right? That's what yeah. creates the pearl. Yeah, the pearl creates is created by the rub. And so when yeah. I come up against that rub, then I know that kind of cognitive friction is probably creating some really interesting germative phenomena. Um, yeah. So no, really touched, you know, to to hear you speak into that. You know, because it's it's my hope and I it's my sense that this is what I'm doing is I'm 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 like devastated by this content all the time. Right. And, and as I was sharing, like I'm in my own process of humility, you know, of just being, you know, challenged with my own self-identities, even though I'm sticking my neck out, out, like it's not like there isn't this alchemical process 
happening on my end. And so there's this beautiful dance between like me and like an article I wrote, like Our Wild Cosmos and you as a reader of that, where we're both in an alchemical process grappling with the potential implications of this. Right. And so it's not like I figured it out and I'm the, you know, I'm the know-it-all here. And then I'm just laying it out like this is the way things are. It's more of like, wow, like what happens if we take seriously the claims that credible people have been making for a long time? Right. And we open our minds. And this is why, you know, the primary mantra in practice for me in this space is taking things seriously and holding them lightly. Right. And so if there's enough compelling testimony, data points, considerations, then let's take it seriously, hold it lightly. But let's, you know, take on these provisional beliefs and see what happens. And, you know, and it's like one of the other areas is, you know, you mentioned Galileo. It's like, yeah, in a sense, I'm saying look through the telescope. But in a sense, the telescope is the practices. Look through the practices. Our traditions are filled with practices that reveal these realities to us. Right. And this is where I get up in arms sometimes where even Tibetan Buddhism has a lot of this. But the secular, the Western secularization of Buddhism, Tibetan Buddhism, often you can have Tibetan Buddhist Western practitioners not realize that that tradition actually makes room for a lot of this phenomenon. Right. And so then, you know, because I was a card carrying Wilberian, you know, for a long time and in a sense still am. You know, I'm, I'm extremely committed to the non-dual traditions, you know, and Mahamudra in particular. And and yet I, I felt like, you know, there's this issue, right, where it's like, like I kept coming across the traditions, you know, Christianity, Buddhism, you know, um, Hinduism, maybe less so with Hinduism. But, you know, over and over again of like, don't go there, don't cultivate these capacities, don't see these realities, don't. Um, do that. It's a distraction from awakening. And and so the way I frame it up in, in my process is this idea of total realization. And total realization is an embrace of the path of luminosity or fullness and the path of like emptiness, right? So the path of emptiness is kind of what we think of as the Eastern mystical tradition where you are dissolving all the veils of illusion, Right. You know, and you're just you're penetrating the the empty reality of phenomena. Um, and that leads to awakening. But the path of luminosity or fullness, in a sense, is more the path of the Western occultist. Right. The magical practitioner, the, the hermetic um, practitioner. And here in this path, which I think actually is a complete full path to realization, like I think they, they both are. But here. It's focused more on, in a sense, kind of an outer practice. You could think of exo, even though in a sense it's still kind of inner, um, of activating all your subtle bodies and all the sensory capacities of those subtle bodies and going and visiting all the different planes of reality and interacting with the beings in those planes and learning from those beings, right? Like, so, so this path just has been, you know, just dismissed out of hand. And yet there are a lot lot of robust practitioners of it, you know, and so, and there are repeatable practices, you know, and it's kind of like, you know, Wilbur points out, if you take a broad empirical view, you know, do this practice, whether it's, you know, this meditative practice or look through this microscope or look through this telescope or do this statistical analysis of economic, you know, dynamics, do the practice, the paradigm, the injunction, get the data, Right? What's the data that comes from that practice? 
um, and then compare that, those results, with other people, the community of the adequate, who have done that practice as well and are recognized as experts by their own peers in those practices, right? And so how can we, how can we not consider the, the viability of that process? And so if there are people who are part of the community of the adequate who have done these occult, magical, hermetic practices, and they're good at it, and they point to these phenomenon as being the obvious result of engaging in those exercises, then who are we to just say no? Like, it, it doesn't fit in my little worldview. You know? so, and, and the other thing is that human beings have been interacting with non-human intelligences forever, right? Like, forever, like, you know, and so what are we to make of that? Are, are there only physical corporal beings, right? Like, let's talk about Dakinis. Like, are we just to assume Dakinis are some archetypal energy? Are they just a product of, you know, yogi men in caves needing to get off on some kind of feminine, you know, you know, visualization? Are they actual beings that live in other realms that impart wisdom and that can actually activate and awaken your meditative practice through their energetic shakti pa or just their um, a, a seed syllable they give you or just some interaction you have with them, right? You know, so it's like, you know, the Western psychologization of phenomenon like the Dakini and the Tibetan tradition, I think, is really interesting and also just heartbreaking because it's like, yeah, of course there's going to be times when people just make this up, right? Or it's just part of an imaginative process, right? It's, it's not like every practitioner who has an encounter with a Dakini is actually having an encounter with a Dakini in the sense of a um, separate, individualized, autonomous intelligence, right? Like, you know, that might be happen from time to time. That might not be the typical reality, Right. But like, how do we make room for that possibility, even if we're tending to emphasize the psychological factors or the cultural factors or the collective unconscious factors or, you know, what have you. Right. Because when you really listen to people who have these encounters, they pass polygraphs, they pass, you know, psychological assessments that say they're sane. Um, you know, and, and it's like, and, and there's also multiple groups who have had these encounters, right? You know, so it's like, it just gets so complex so fast. And it's like, you know, the science is telling us that we're, within the next few years, we're likely to confirm um, biosignatures on other planets, right? You know, and, and there's different estimates of how many and, and how long, but it's like, we're really close to the point of being being able to acknowledge through the, you know, um, the web telescope that, yeah, there are other planets out there that have life on them. And this is why we think that this here, the, the, and, and we're even looking for technological signatures, right? We just had, we just had, um, Avi Loeb, right? The head of the Galileo project coming out of Harvard, who's teamed up with Sean Kirkpatrick, who's the head of Arrow, which is essentially the UF, Pentagon's UFO program that just got $62 million for its first year of funding. Okay, Congress is not messing around with this. They just gave Sean $62 million to research, um, you know, UFOs, essentially. And, and the name Arrow, All Domain Anomalous Resolution Office, right? So UAP used to stand for unidentified aerial phenomenon. Congress changed that, I think it was in December, so that it's unidentified anomalous phenomenon. 
And why did they make this change? Because the craft that are being encountered go up into space, come down into our airspace, go underwater, right? They're transmedium. They're able to move across these domains. All domain means space, air, and undersea. And I would argue, if you really look at the literature, that even underground, that they can go into mountains, you know, like, and so it's like, it's crazy. Um, I mean, it's just like, what the... <laughs> This again, there's just so much that you pepper out, which you, with every one of these little riffs, it's just amazing. But I want to just backpedal to a couple of things and see if I can just run a little bit of commentary yeah. in augmentation and a few things. I really love what you said at the outset about how you're constantly being defeated. That is such an important role in in really um, learning. I mean, if like Thich Nhat Hanh says, right? If you think what you know is the definitive truth, that is the end of your progress, man. That is a hard stop. And there's a beautiful quote by Rilke, which I love. Winning does not tempt that man, for this is how he grows, by being defeated decisively right. by constantly greater beings. Well, here, the you know, the defeat is what? The defeat is to centricity. The defeat is to the egoic agenda, to keep the comforter around, to keep everything secure, keep, keep everything tidy, keep everything predictable. So I think a, a large reason for the resistance to this is just obviously the fear the fear of the unknown. But I love I love one-liner quotes, right? Marie Curie, nothing in life is to be feared. It is only to be understood. And so therefore to understand this thing is, is to remove the fear and, and to allow ourselves to be open, to be defeated, to constantly grow, because otherwise we're not going to grow. I mean, we're just going to get stuck in our ways. So the other thing that I like about your view so much, in fact, is one way to look at it within the context of, of the Buddhist Eightfold Path this is a really elegant way to talk about the extraordinary power of right view wow. to raise your gaze to literally, in this case, look up, right? Right. See the cosmos for what it is. And then to play on this notion, we usually say in the West, you know, I'll, I'll um, believe it when I see it. Well, I think it works in a bi-directional way. I'll see it right. when I believe it. And so when you have this right view, you have the, the, the um, container, the doctrinal understanding of it then that actually greases the skids for you to raise your gaze and actually become more and more available to these agencies. Yeah. Which in my opinion, are they're just as real or unreal as we are. Who's to say that we have this ontological supremacy? Right. So you talk about in our last riff, you talked about so beautifully about this whole ontological fluidity thing, wow. the ability to just be more and more available. The other thing I wanted to say here, Sean, um, I loved your usage of, of the colloquialism, make room for it. I mean, again, that, that's this notion of introducing space, space awareness. Yeah. There's one thing that's curative, psycho-spiritually psycho curative, it's space awareness. And yeah. so if we can learn to make, literally make room, allow room to, to open our hearts and minds to these things, yeah. then in a very real way, we're mixing our minds and hearts with space. We're making ourselves much more available to these agencies. And it's like we're opening up. Um, avenues of communication and conversation with ready conversationalists, if we simply open up from our side, if we simply yeah. allow ourselves shut up, open and listen. And the other thing, um, again, these are more just exclamations about the elegance of what you're saying. And this is so important. This is what, what makes your work different from traditional philosophy in the pejorative sense, armchair sophistry, is, is the praxis, the, the practices. That This is something that actually can become psychoactive. So let me ping this question across your brow. 
Um, oh, that's an interesting slip across your brow and across your bow. Um, this is an amazingly elegant description. It's profoundly descriptive. Say a little bit more, run a little bit more with prescriptive, how you can take this description as a prescription and then and, and then bring it into a path of opening. Because otherwise, people read it, they're left with it. Well, this is really cool. Wow, interesting. On to the next thing. But I think what you're really talking about is, no, this actually can inform a way of looking within, looking without, to actually bring, make it psychoactive, actually take this view into your life, taking right view, really expanding it, so that it becomes integrated, so that you actually live, breathe from what this view is actually suggesting. So talk a little bit more about the prescriptive-descriptive relationship. Yeah, so one of the things that I started noticing as I really started diving into the phenomenon and you know reading, listening to eyewitness testimony, um, people who've had these experiences, is often there's, you know, people have an encounter, whether it's a near-death experience or an out-of-body experience or a meditative experience that, you know, where they find themselves in a different landscape. Um, and often there's an interaction with a, a being of some sort. And, and then after that interaction, it's like a very notable interaction. They, they have energetic experiences, you know, sometimes can be a Kundalini-like. Um, and then after the encounter, they start having the experience of psi phenomenon. Mm-hmm. And so there's something about these encounters and these experiences that activates um, these people's ability, and it's different for different people. Some people start having precognitive dreams. Some people start having dead people show up and talk to them. Some people start being able to sense the energy of the people around them and getting information from that. Um, so it's, and so I kept wondering, like, what is going on here? Like, what is the mechanism? You know, why are these encounters? And the encounters just range across all the paranormal literature, right? And then people are getting activated. Um, and so I was thinking about that. And then I was thinking about the occult, magical, and hermetic traditions that actively talk about cultivating these capacities. And then I was thinking about the, the you know, Asian traditions and the yogic traditions that basically say, yeah, we can activate these, but let's not do that. Or let's do it under really, you know, certain con- situations. And, um, and, you know, and I also kept noticing that, that as saints, if you study the life of saints, right, East-West, on their path, in their in their biographies, their hagiography, you know, it's like they essentially start talking about these abilities, that they start having these abilities, you know. And so I was kind of, you know, like, and I've, you know, been a Russian Orthodox Christian, um, and, and I always found it interesting that it's like, study the saints, um, and oh, by the way, the saints have all these psychic abilities, but don't do practices that give you that. Like only God gives you that. That's just through grace, right? And if you go looking for that, you're that's the devil's work in a sec. You know, but but I just kept going, what's going on? Like what like you know, then you look at something like Mike Murphy's work, The Future of the Body, right? Where he's also documenting this, right? And he's talking about athletes, right? The psychic side of sports, this old classic book of like basically extreme athletes who have psychic abilities that actually support them in their athleticism. Right. You know, and so one of the examples I love, and I don't think I said this last time, is you know, archers who are able to hit a target a mile away. 
where they have this telescopic eyesight where they are able to bring the target forward visually that such that it appears like it's a hundred mile a hundred yards away, so like length of a football field, which is still pretty hard to hit, right? Um, but it's no longer a mile away. And 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 they aim at it as if it's a hundred yards away, but they get the bullseye that's a mile away, right? So there's this, this weird psychic kind of time space thing that's going on. Right. So in looking at all of this, you know, I I really started going, okay, the subtle bodies are involved. You know, our subtle esoteric anatomy is involved in this and, and, and maybe predominantly so. And, and the more I kind of had that frame and looking at the data, the more I got convinced like, yeah, this is about subtle bodies and different subtle, there's different systems that talk about the different number of subtle bodies. Um, but a number of them basically have anywhere from five to nine subtle bodies, right? So not just one or two, right? We're talking about the Hindu system, the Tibet system, um, you know, the, you know, esoteric Western system, you know, that there's usually, you know, between seven and nine different subtle bodies. And each of these subtle bodies has different chakras, have the same chakras, but it's like a different layer of the chakra. And different psychic capacities are connected to different bodies and different inner senses related to different chakras. So, so basically, and I've always been a very big body person, like somatic work. I've done a lot, worked with a lot of different somatic practitioners. Um, part of that's an antidote to my mind because I'm so in my mind, I, I realized about 20 years ago, I need to get in my body. So I started doing what my kids um, derogatorily say, refer to as nature dance, right? Where I go out and I'm just like moving, you know, just like, you know, just like, just totally groove it on the woods. And, you know, and so I've always been interested in the body and embodiment. And, and yet when we, when we look at the subtle bodies and how to activate the subtle bodies and how to access the etheric body versus the astral body versus the mental body versus the causal body, there's different realms and realities that are associated with each of those bodies. And there's different modes of perception. So most people who do energy healing, so like, you know, that, you know, kind of our typical California energy healer, they tend to get into their etheric body and then work on the etheric body of their clientele, right? You know, and, and so, so you start to see this, this dynamic, subtle landscape emerge around our own embodiment. And that, you know, some psychics have access to, can, can have certain psychic information that's just connected to certain bodies and certain chakras in that body but a different psychic might be accessing a different one of their bodies with different types of information. Because I was often wondering, wow, when I go to one psychic and they say X and I go to another psychic and they say Y, does that just prove psychics are bullshit? Or does it prove that they're tapping into different layers? Like, is there a, a frame in which maybe they're both right? But how could they be both right? Right. So as I started to kind of wake up to these possibilities, and then I discovered the Western esoteric tradition has a very robust set of practices of working with your subtle energies and, and basically differentiating them um, so that you can access them. And that this is like the path of fullness, right? Of like activating all of them, right? Our dream body is different than, you know, the body we're in when we have certain non-dual experiences, right? You know, so, so there's this complex set of relationships between our meditative experiences and being in different embodied energetic states or layers of the subtle body 
and the different um, inner senses that are connected to those bodies. And so for me, there's just this whole realm of practice that we can do to begin to work with and activate this. And even, you know, the the six, you know, you know um, yogas of Naropa, you know, like they get into a lot of this, right? So you find this in, in all the traditions. Um, so for me, you know, one of the areas of practice is, is to really thwart the message that like, don't go there, it's dangerous, right? And it's like, no, like, this is my, this is what it means to be human, right? This is what it means to be superhuman. Like, we have these capacities, and you know this from your deep dream work. You know, anyone and everyone can cultivate the capacities that you are experiencing through your dream work with just a little dedication and guidance, right? It's not rocket science. I mean, it takes dedication, and to get the, the farthest reaches, you know, you need a little grace and you need a good teacher and you need, you know, hard work. But you can get pretty far down the field just with, you know, if, you know a little bit of help, right? So, and this is where I feel our, our religious traditions have failed us, you know, because Jeffrey Kripal points out that all religious traditions basically started as a result of paranormal experiences and psychic phenomenon. They're, they're at the root of every major and minor tradition. And yet most of those traditions, as they get codified, become dismissive and ignore these phenomena, these realities, these capabilities. And, and partly it's like, yeah, we need an ethical framework to consider and cultivate and work with that. Um, but to me, it's like there's just this wealth of practices that have already been documented in the Eastern and Western traditions. Um, and people that I work with who have these capacities and work with these practices, they are wise and compassionate. I'm not coming across like narcissists. I'm not coming across people on ego trips. I'm not coming across people who are anything other than, you know, integrating and transforming and trying to make sense of their complex experiences and are just really cultivating love and service for pretty much everyone around them. So, so when I see people who are doing these practices, I see the same kind of people that I see in my Tibetan Buddhist friends, right? Like there's not a real difference, right? It's not like, oh, those people have gone way off, you know, track and they're in, you know, they're like, you know, subtle body practices are the gateway drug to, you know, complete narcissistic meltdowns. Like, no, it's like, oh my gosh, it's like, the, this is a path of wisdom and compassion, right? And there's amazing practices that are part of that. Right, uh, equally as powerful in some respects as as the, you know, the the non-dual Asiatic traditions. Just again, it's incredibly rich. And if I can just run a couple of comments, yeah. what you said, and then we can bounce a couple of things off and, and elaborate on it. I think on one level, playfully, you said it's not rocket science. Well, I think on one level, it's inner rocket science, right? Right. You're, yeah. Yeah. Right. You're, you're basically becoming a psychonaut, or if right. you're in dreams, onironaut. Right. And so this is why, uh, you know, on, on this podcast platform, I interviewed Ron Guerin, who's an astronaut, um, Frank White, um, who coined the term overview effect is coming in. And we're going to be talking a little bit about this exploration of inner and outer space and, and similarities and differences. But one thing is so rocking cool here is, again, coming back to this beautiful Wordsworth quote, I contain multitudes. Right. Well, that, that can be in itself, that's a multivalent concept. Right. I contain multitudes in terms of when we do integral speak, I contain multitudes in terms of all the different developmental yeah. structures that are actually yeah. held within me. And that 
I manifest those moment to moment. You know, the, this locus of identity is is a fluid um, locus that's really working along two, if not three, different axes. And if you put yourself in a particular environment, a certain aspect within you that will come out, like chameleon-like, depending on the environment. But run a little bit more, um, Sean, on this really, the notion of uh, the subtle body, boy, now you're really speaking my language. In Shambhala Buddhism, they use a wonderful term, it's called the inner court, connected, of course, to the um, Sambhogakaya, which in a certain way is the most populated and interesting of the courts. Yeah. Because, because it's basically from fully de-reified open emptiness, Dharmakaya, to fully reified, solidified Nirmanakaya. Then you have this massive intermediate bandwidth yeah. that to me is so bloody interesting. And so maybe if you could help me understand a little bit more about um, your, your grokking or understanding of the subtle bodies not only within us, but also outside of us, because um, in the Buddhist world, there tends to be more of an emphasis that the kayas, these strata of dimensions of beings actually exist within us. But one of the things I really love about Hindu approaches, the koshas, and even kind of astral um, curling and photography type of thing, is that in a, in a real way, as I start to expand my horizons around this, well, the subtle bodies are not just within us, they're also around us. Yeah. So it's almost as if, not almost, it's, it, it really is like what we know is the gross body is actually sandwiched between these subtle bodies. Yeah. And so that in itself, like, well, this is this is a total mind death. It's like, wh- what does this do to my sense of soma, which right. is where I temporarily localize my identity here? Right. And then, and again, just one, one last thing along these lines, just to give it some, some data from the neuroscientific community, you know, this the work for, of um, Torres Narachandras and his book, The User Illusion. This amazing right. facts, you know, we take in. I mean, if you just if you just rest on this fact alone, it's a total mind blower. We take in less than one ten trillion. Wow. Amazing. I mean, one ten trillionth of what's actually flowing around us. Are you kidding me? And even then, that part that we take in is vastly edited, filtered to basically support the worldview that we currently inhabit. And so talk about, you know, Ken's first book, Spectrum of Consciousness, right? Oh, my gosh. It's Spectrum of Mind, Spectrum of Embodiment, yeah. Spectrum of the Subtle Body. So last thing around this, because these are just some um, seed questions for you around this. The, the other thing I flashed on when you were talking about this is how death fits into this. That in addition to the dream yoga stuff, to me, the ultimate penultimate um, nocturnal meditation is bardo yoga, which transcends what includes all the other practices. And to me, when I read about it and have some concordant experiences of that in deep meditation, it seems to me that that's part of what the death process invites, commands, and almost forces is a a dislocation from this localized sense of identity, the death of the outer body. And then in a certain way, again, if you don't have the right view and you haven't done uh, the practices, a forced introduction, right, right, into the totality and the spectrum of your being. And to me, what actually, therefore, this is this ties into praxis. This, I'm trying to bolt this into something real. Because to me, what happens in a death journey is a kind of a final exam. Pop quiz happens every night when we sleep, by the way, is that, hey, what constitutes a realization. I, I hate to use the word enlightenment because now that seems so static and reified. Is that like once you're enlightened, that's it? No, that's just the beginning. But to me, I look at the, the whole death thing as a forced dislocation from this um, gross outer body. 
And then a tour, an involuntary, uncompromising tour of these dimensions of our being. If we are familiar with them, the very definition of meditation in Tibetan to become familiar with, if we can relate to them, if we can be open to them, I believe that that's what constitutes enlightenment in in the death process. And that's why for the great beings that go through it, it's just no big deal. They're cascading through dimensions of interiority and being that they're already familiar with. They're doing it voluntarily. They're not freaking out. They have a relationship to it. And therefore, they can ride the surf. People who aren't familiar with it, right? Literally, to become familiar with meditation, what do they do? Too big, too open, too wild, too different, whatever. And what do they do? They contract. And that very genesis of contraction really initiates the whole samsaric trajectory. Mm. That's what kicks you out of the bardo dharmata into the bardo becoming, literally reiterated in the contractions of your mother at birth. How interesting is that? Right. Literally reiterated yet again when you contract in the form of grasping, right. whether it's worldviews, thoughts, you name it, right? So to me, it's like, holy moly, Batman, you're, you're talking about stuff that applies not only to the way we relate right. to life and what's happening here. I see this as like bardo yoga. I see this as a way to really open, de-reify, decentralized opening. To me, death is the grand opening. Are you going to be open enough for the grand opening? Or it's so open, so spacious, you're going to contract, what, out of fear? Too much space, too much space, too much freedom, right? Too much freedom, boom. And then there you go. This happens moment to moment to moment, not just at at death, it's happening right now. So a lot of noodle stoning as well, that's only because you throw so many beautiful things out. But I wanted to put some exclamation points on the beauty of what you're saying and also see what lands with you here that, that you can run with. Yeah, yeah, this all resonates really well. Let me start with the Bardo piece um, and then kind of work backwards with the things you highlighted. Yeah, at a certain point, I had this aha as I was, you know, really asking myself, okay, is astral projection, is out of body, you know, taking on the practice of out of body experiences, is that really a path to enlightenment? Like, you know, because I'd had all this indoctrination that it's not right you know the you know like no that's that's not real spirituality that's just you know you're just screwing around and you know go do it if you have to but come back when you're ready for like the real deal right so i was like and then at a certain point i thought you know as i was listening to and reading the people who have made a lifelong practice of this and are taking it as far as it can go um one i started noticing them describing basically you know, having pointing out instructions that sounded like, you know, my favorite Rinpoche's and Lamas. So I was like, okay, what's going on here? This is weird. But then I had this realization, like you're saying, I was like, oh my gosh, this is Bardo training. This is like, when you do this path, you, one thing that people report very early on in is, is their fear of death goes away. And they start actively working with essentially, because every time you go through this process, you're essentially, you know, dying, right? Um, And, you know, and so a lot of it is Bardo training. And and one of the things that happens with people on this path is when they're doing the practices, they encounter dead people all the time and they end up helping dead people. Right. And so you're actually, you know, and I remember Lama Paulden, you know, who I worked with for many years, you know, we were having a meeting with her and she had talked about someone who in the Sangha who had died recently and she was describing how, you know, kind of in a nonchalant way, and it was really caught me off guard because this was at the very beginning of my journey and all this. 
in a nonchalant way, describing how she was going into the Bardos and assisting them in their process. And I was like, what? Like, you're a Tibetan Lama. The Tibetan Lamas don't do that. Like, what are you talking about? Like, you know, and then since then, I've had other Lamas and Rinpoche say similar things about, you know, supporting, you know, people in the dying, you know, after they've died in, you know, the after death stages and process, right? And so, and then also when you look at the experience or literature, um, you know, across all the different weird paranormal topics, dead people show up everywhere. And people are often very confused, like, why is there a dead person on this UFO, right? That my uncle was on this UFO and he died six years ago. What is he doing here, right? Or, you know, like, you know, like after I had this encounter with a Bigfoot, I'm walking down, I'm walking through the woods, you know, the next day and I bump into my neighbor who's hiking on the same path. We have a conversation. I hug him. He keeps going. I get home and find out he died three days ago. You know, and so like, so then there's like, there's some weird connection between the Bigfoot encounter and then you being in this activated kind of open paranormal state where then you have what felt like a full body hug with a dead person, right? So, so the dead show up over and over again in all of these experiences and it's very confusing to people. In fact, one of my favorite authors um, just wrote a book, a two volume set called Ecology of Souls, where he's kind of trying to create a meta theory around the role that the dead play in all of this. Um, but anyway, so, so yeah, I think death is a big part of this. And this is Bardo training. These, the hermetic tradition, the esoteric, you know, magical traditions are very much about Bardo training by any other name. Now, coming back to the point you made with like, you have Nirmanakaya, you have Dharmakaya, and then you have some Bodhakaya, right? And that you have this massive range of phenomenon right? And it's it's very interesting. And yeah, it is seductive. It is, you know, we have to be mindful of like how we engage that. But, and, you know, if you think of, there's often a lot of systems have a three body system, gross body, subtle body, causal body. But, and there really does seem to be essentially one physical body. I have a one physical body. And when we talk about, you know, the causal body or like the ultimate subtle body, there really is one because it's like timeless, spaceless. It's like, it's, you know, it's, it's can't even really talk about it, but like we can just kind of point to it in a sense, right? So in a sense, there is a, a singularity of sorts for each of those. But then when you talk about the subtle body, there's just a lot going on. And like even in the kosha system, the five koshas, you basically, the first kosha is the physical body. The last kosha, you know, is like the causal body. And then the three koshas in the middle are the subtle body. But what you find is like historically, when you look at the religious traditions that have worked with the subtle bodies, over time, more and more subtle bodies emerge. And what seems to be going on is the subtle bodies are pliable, they're dynamic, they're energetic, and there's this process of differentiation that's happening. More and more subtle bodies are being enacted and cultivated and created and kind of developed, right? Just And, and so we now, so like, the early, if you look at Taoism and Hinduism and Buddhism, you know, in the like second through like eighth century, you have very simple subtle body systems. As you move forward into the 10th, 11th, 12th century and beyond, they get more complex typically, right? And, and so we could interpret that in a number of ways. But I think one thing that's going on is more practices were developed to differentiate more and more layers of that phenomenon 
And, you know, just like if you go to the gym and you start working out, you'll find muscles you didn't have. You'll start showing, you know, like you'll find these muscle groups. It's like, oh, I didn't realize there was a little muscle there that, you know, so it's like by the 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 attention that the practice is placed on this full spectrum of Sambodokaya and all the subtle energies and realities, then uh, there's a lot there. And I think this is partly what makes it also overwhelming, right? Because when you look at these maps of like the astral realms and the planes and all the different beings that are on different planes, and this is the other thing is that nature spirits predominantly are essentially etheric bodied beings. Angels or celestial beings tend to be causal or buddhic body beings. Um, nightmares, to the extent that they become an embodied form or a thought form, tend to be astral bodied beings. So they're actually these cartographies and these ways of understanding that different bodies allow you to move and interact on different layers of reality, different realms. And so if you have a particular capacity to access your astral body, then in a conscious way, then you will have access to those realms and those beings. But then you could be in that space. But if you haven't activated the inner senses connected to that body, you're going to have a hard time seeing, perceiving, um, talking, remembering what happens. And so a lot of what happens in these paths, it's very similar to the Tibetan Buddhist, where it's like, ultimately, we want to be awake during the full sleep cycle. Right, we want to take waking consciousness into the dream state and then into the deep dreamless state. Right, like we want to strengthen our capacity to hold, be awake and aware through that process. The occultists are doing the same thing. We want to be awake and aware through this these experiences so we can bring back and remember the information. Right, and it's very much like termas. Right, you get a terma. And you have like a single mantra that you pull out of, you know, the thin air that Guru Rinpoche put there, you know, when when he realized that he needed to go around, you know, Tibet and do that and Bhutan and do that. Right. And then it's like the single seed mantra, basically, when the, you know, the the Turton unpacks it and writes it out, it's like a giant book. Right. Like all of that information is like condensed into that single mantra, but in the process of unpacking it, when you access it, right? So that ability basically is described in the occult traditions. You have these interactions with these beings. Many cases, they're higher beings and whatever that means, but they're giving you wisdom. And then you have to have the strength of consciousness to pull it back across the veil and make use of it. And so a lot of the practices are about building your ability to stay conscious and awake in bardo training, no matter what your circumstances, right? So that you can cultivate your wisdom and compassion as a result of these encounters, and then bring that to the beings that you're interacting with on this gross realm plane, other humans and plants and animals. Again, just amazing. It's, it's like what you were talking about in another writing. That, um, these are the super experiencers, right? The, what you talk about is meta persons. Again, I, lo I love all these new words. It's just amazing. Super experiences, meta persons that have the capacity to basically, again, what an interesting iteration again, the opening the aperture of awareness, dilating consciousness so that we maintain. Yeah, this point is so key. And you know a little bit about this from your study of um, Bernardo Castrop and some yeah. of the points he makes. What we're finding when we do brain studies of these individuals, these super experiencers, channelers, people on psychedelic experiences, the brain is less active. Yeah. 
It's opening. These phenomenon are the result, the access to these realities are the result of openness. The brain scans are showing us that. The EEGs are showing us that. The, the brain activity is slowing down and the filtering function of the, the wetware is being transcended and our mind is able to access a wider range, the, the multidimensional multiverse, as I say, right? Spot on. And this will, in a second, this will turn us into the, the, the place, the skillful means of psychedelics, which I want to get to in a second. But the other thing that, you, again, you're hitting on so many amazing things here. I, I just want to unpack a couple because they're so rich. One is is the the kind of the, Ah, the plasticity, the uh, the ontic plasticity of the subtle body. <clears throat> that it really is it's a thought, like you mentioned uh, in our last conversation, it's a thought-responsive domain. It's a visualization-responsive domain. It's an inner respiratory-responsive domain. And so, therefore, to me, this helps, again, create the right view. It's, right. Like, it's like a little bit like me when I'm doing these practices, I'm from Minnesota. I'm from Michigan, but same thing, Minnesota. Hey, <laughs> it's a bunch I'm of lakes not, over there. I'm not, I'm not a Tibetan. I, I, you, you don't just tell me, go do this and go do it. I, yeah. I'm going to say, okay, why am I doing this? Right? Why? Because if I understand why, I grok the mechanism, I grok the phenomenology, then I'm going to go into three-year retreat because yeah. I, ah, now I get it. Right. So I think for Westerners, this is really important because we don't roll particularly in the same way. So for me, this what this does is so beautiful, is, is it, it helps me understand when I wear my scientific hat, the the, the mechanisms, the the uh, again, the phenomenology of what takes place, like even with things like mantra recitation, you know, when I'm engaging in, it's so big in Hinduism and Buddhism that a synonym for Tantra or Vajrayana is mantrayana, right. the vehicle of sacred sound. So what am I doing when I'm reciting these sacred sounds? Well, my experience now, and you seem to be echoing this as well, is that subtle body works at the level of, of um, resonance, somewhat literally resonant with the frequency domain of what we know as speech. My voice has a particular type of form, but it's still pretty formless. It's a subtle form. Yeah. Light has a type of form, but it's pretty formless. Visualization is light of the mind. So when I, when I work with visualization and mantra, I'm actually working in a thought responsive domain to actually manipulate, it's not just it's not just neuroplasticity. Exactly. It's, yeah. not, it's nadi plasticity, the subtle tunnel. Exactly. So yeah. you're we're working in this top-down approach. Yeah. This is tantra, man. You are actually affecting through visualization, through mantra. And again, for me, this is like, why am I doing it? Why am I reciting a million of these mantras? Why am I visualizing this till I turn blue in the face? Right. Oh, I understand because using these processes, I'm actually affecting transformation in the subtle yeah. body. And then that's coming back up and it's affecting transformation in the gross body. Exactly. Yeah. So and this is so key because the, the traditions understand that, you know, different mantras that have different seed syllables, that different seed syllables connect to different chakras and different bodies. And by chanting over and over again, you're activating those centers, those energetic dynamics and you're purifying them and you're bringing them into their fullest harmonic possibility. And so you're basically giving yourself by chanting and also doing the visualizations that go along with that, you're massaging and activating and cultivating your subtle body. It's like going to the gym and working out your muscles and building those up by the visualizations and the sounds, you are cultivating and differentiating and developing the subtle energetic anatomy that can then hold the enlightened awareness. 
our bodies as they typically are cannot hold it. And so you have to build the somatic capacity, right? The subtle somatic capacity to hold these energies. And so what often happens is sometimes through psychedelics or through a UFO encounter or through a near-death experience or being struck by lightning, those powerful energetic encounters sometimes will blow out a chakra or blow out your energy system. And, 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 it, and it can take years for people to rebuild the subtle energy anatomy associated with their body. And so enlightened awareness Need, in a sense, as because we are physical and energetic beings and needs a container in a sense, right? And, and so, so there's a lot to be said about building the capacity to hold the wisdom that the tradition offers, right? And there's this book that came out recently called The Subtle Body, um, a Genealogy by Simon um, Cox. And he's a student, a doctoral student who finished up under Kripal at Rice University, and he was on the search to find what he called the Ur body, right? He was a, he was a practitioner of Taoist and Chinese um, subtle body practices, and he wanted to understand the subtle body. So he wanted to understand what's the – all the traditions are basically, you know, um, blind men and the elephant. And he wanted to find the elephant. He wanted to find the, the one map of the subtle body that was like the ultimate map that really detailed it, right? And he kind of was taking the postmodern view that, well, the Tibetans had one aspect of it, the Chinese had one aspect of it, the Hindus had one aspect of it. But what he found when he actually did the research is that they all have different maps and models of the subtle bodies, and they're not commensurate. They don't come together. And so he came up with this term, prepare yourself for this, <laughs> Multinatural somatic pluralism. Yeah, I love it. I love it. And what he means by this is that these are it's a multi the, the subtle body is is real, ontologically real, in a multiple natural sense, right? Um it's somatic, so it's embodied, but it's pluralistic, it's multiple, like there's many of them. And and this is why if you also look, the Tibetan tradition has five or six chakras typically, the Hindu tradition has seven. The Egyptian had 12. So is it the Tibetans missed two, right? Like, you know, are the Hindus, you know, one up on the Tibetans because they have seven chakras and the Tibetans only have five or six. And so the Tibetans, you know, are weren't able to find that final chakra. No, it doesn't work that way. It's a dynamic neuroplastic, subtle plastic space and depending on the practices you have, depending on the morphic fields associated with tradition, depending on the cultural dynamics, different traditions are going to have different subtle body systems. And so we're not all born with nine subtle bodies, right? We're, we're born with the potential for any number of subtle bodies, um, depending on what traditions we're born into, what practices we take up. Right. And what traumas occur along the way, what experiences occur along the way. And the other thing about the subtle is I know you're a big fan of idealism. So am I in many respects. But I, I am often struck with this situation. And we've talked about this a little bit before. So we have materialism on the one side. Right. That says mind comes out of matter and they have, have a so-called hard problem. Right. Because they're screwed. There's no way they're going to solve that. Right. We know that. All right. But on the other hand, the idealists have the same situation, how to describe how matter comes out of consciousness, 
right? Like they might have a slightly better chance of doing that, but they have what I would call a tough problem, right? <laughs> so they, there's a hard problem and there's a tough problem. How do we get mind out of matter? How do we get matter out of mind, right? And I have to say, when I read even Bernardo, but you know, and many other like you know, kind of well-articulated idealists, at the end of the day, I'm just, just I'm just left wanting. I'm like, okay, like I get you, like at an abstract level, yeah, yeah that makes sense. But it's like, like I don't know, like there's just like it's like you can't get from Dharmakaya to Dharmanakaya without some Bodhakaya. Right. And this is where I think the, the subtle bodies, the subtle energy systems, they actually provide the connective tissue between pure experience and physicality and, and all the kind of layers of, you know, of, you know, high subtle, you know, all the way down to, you know. And so I think there's a spectrum of subtle phenomena and realities that the idealists need to have more fluency in those models and realities to better describe how matter comes out of mind, because ultimately I think that's true. But I'm just not very persuaded by the way a lot of our Western I idealists try and go about that, right? And and I think the Tibetans do a better job of it, but they still, but still, so I so it's kind of this interesting thing that the subtle realities actually is the bridge between mind and matter, yeah, in a sense. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I just very very briefly on this because there's so much I want to pack, but I just want to toss this out before I get into my unpacking yeah. section. How does Spinoza's double aspect? Um, approach here uh, come into play that uh, paraphrasing him please correct me if I'm wrong um, matter or a body is just really gross mind mind is just really subtle body um, is that yeah. uh, to me there seems to be some traction there so maybe just yeah. a brief comment about that and then I do want to come back I want to unfold a, a number of things here because what, what we're doing here is exactly what I set out at the outset whether we know it or not is how does exo relate to endo Right. What we're talking about, man. So we're we're absolutely exploring this this kind of bidirectional approach here. But before I get into some of the things I want to elaborate, how does Spinoza's view fit into this? Yeah, so it's interesting. If you look at like dual aspect monism, you look at neutral monism, many acknowledge that they essentially sound the same. Like when you look at what they're describing, they're basically say mind and matter come out of a one. Right, that there's this this thing, the substance, this this matrix, and out of that come mind and matter. Now, dual aspect monism, what they tend to say is that the one, right, the whatever the one is, is both mind and matter, right? Whereas the neutral monists say the one is neither mind nor matter, right? So then for me, the integral monism on this would be that the one by whatever name, is is both mind and matter and neither mind or matter, right? Exactly. You got to do the Nargarjuna thing there, the, right? The, what they call the tetralema, exactly. Yeah. Right. yeah, you need that paradox because that one is a paradox, right? And if and if if you just go with the dual aspect, you're missing the fact that it's you know it's it's you know it's neither mind or matter. And if you go with just that, you're missing the fact that it is both mind and matter. But then when we get to mind and matter. You know, and this is what I like about um, Max Vellman's, you know, reflective monism, where he says the, the mind is first person perspective and the matter is third person perspective and they are irreducible to each other. You cannot reduce one to the other. Um, but what I my integral monism would add between those two, the second person. And so I would have first person mind, second person meaning and third person matter. 
all three of those are irreducible to each other, and all three come out of the one, which is um, both mind, meaning, and matter, and neither mind, meaning, or matter, right? And then now I think we're, we're getting somewhere. So I think there is a lot. I think Spinoza has a, there's a lot to contribute from him. Yeah. William James was more of a neutral monist. So I think we got to, you know, so there is a really rich Western philosophical tradition that grapples with this, that I think does graft on to some of the points that come out of the, the Eastern traditions. I mean, going all the way back, really give yourself some credit, the work of Peter Kingsley and Parmenides, right? I mean, right. That, that colossal contribution that just gets certain way snuffed out with the genius of Aristotle and, and in Plato. But, but but there's a couple. Oh my God! You again. This is like you hit on so many amazing things. When you talk about um, there's a couple of narratives that I'm weaving that I'm hearing coming through over and over, which are so cool. Like the tantra of our of our talk today, the weave. Yeah. One is that you're talking about um, subtle bodies, and there's many of them. Well, what I immediately flashed on there's many of us. Right. Again, right. it's I can take multitudes thing again, right? right? Those subtle bodies, they're they're within us. And so what this stuff does so beautifully is it invites, and then and eventually either through a crowbar or through cognitive dynamite, right. dislodges this, this exclusive identification with our form. That's exactly what ego is. That's the way Eckhart Tolle defines ego. I love it. Exclusive identification with form, right? So yeah, totally. You've got to, and so another thing around this that I playfully talked about, there's many of them, there's many of us. Playfully, again, because I'm a Gemini, I love to play with words. What we're basically talking here about is the inner United States. We're talking about the United States of consciousness, right? The United States of being, the United States of yeah, mind. Exactly. That's actually very interesting, again, iteratively. This the path is not, of fullness. Right? Exactly. The path of fullness is embracing that. Or Dustin Dupurna refers to it as openness, uh-huh. right? Which connects with your definition of meditation, right? Being open to all of these realms and phenomena and experiences. And again, there's, there's room at the table for this. But again, this this is, and I love what you talk about uh, in your bio, you know, the social impact. Hey, wait a second, baby. This, this again, is not just phenomenological. This is not just interior. This is exterior. So when I when I play with this notion of United States, and red and blue and all these different colors and all the different kind of topographies, cognitive and otherwise of these states. This is just an exo manifestation of this Indo phenomena. Yeah. To me, I don't see these as different. And yeah. so if we understand that, boy, does this connect us to others? Does this bring a sense of tolerance and understanding and compassion? Because we've established a relationship to these interiority, the United States, not the disunited States, the United States of our own being, that can then help us literally translate that into working with the so-called outer United States. But I, I want to, again, just say two things here, and then I'll throw it back into your court because there's so much. One thing that I really want to throw into this mix here, um, because I, I, I definitely want to get back to psychedelic or turn to psychedelics oh, yeah. in a second, is that there are a set of practices when we're dealing with the subtle body stuff. Th- this is There is a surgeon's general warning in the deep contemplative practices, when you're working with deep intersubtle body processes, for instance, and I, I can speak from direct experience, um, people who have done the inner yogas, the true core, the chandali, these really intense inner, they're called wrathful methods of liberation. Why? Because they target the somatic basis of samsara mm. as it's lodged in your subtle body constitution. And that's why you you have to have a somewhat stable mind that, that detects. This is why there are prescription strength; they're restricted because you go jumping into these things without preparation. 
in a certain way, it's it's a little bit like what happened with our dear our mutual friend Christopher Beish using psychedelics after 20 years. He had to stop. Why? Because the psychedelics had blown his chakra system so wide open, his channels were so wide open, he couldn't handle the energy and he was going to lose it. I know people who literally, I know a guy who did 49 days in the dark. It took him years to get his (laughs) shit back together because he blew out chakras and he came out of this and he's like, he wasn't awake. He was like borderline crazy. So when I'm throwing this out for a little bit, you know, children at home, certainly don't do this or, or do it with the right supervision because you start targeting the basis of samsara. These things are profoundly. That's the nuclear option. (laughs) That's the nuclear option. The promise is in direct proportion to the peril. So I throw this out because. Oh, absolutely. This is often, especially there's all this new stuff. I had a a conversation with a leading editor of a, a Buddhist magazine just this week. You know, people want to write about dark retreat. Aaron Rodgers did this dark retreat stuff. It's like, holy moly, man, you better be really careful when you start exploring these dimensions of interiority. And this ties into the next thing I wanted to bring in is when we talk about subtle bodies, we haven't said this overtly yet. We're talking about the unconscious mind. Your body is your unconscious mind. And so when you're targeting these subtle bodies, you're targeting your unconscious mind, which neuroscience will tell you, right? Bruce, Bruce Lipton and others, 95% of what we do minimum is dictated by these unconscious processes. Yeah. So again, this is a very powerful way um, to bring all the processes of the unconscious into consciousness. That I think is one way to talk about not only individuation, but enlightenment. So this stuff is really powerful. It's really charged. And I think one has to um, just be slightly cautious when we go dipping into these territories to understand both the promise and peril here. So I have more to say, but I'll, th- I'll throw those enough, those noodles for now. So maybe say, talk a little bit, Sean, if this lands with you, because our, our, our dear friend um, Ken Wilbur talks about this beautifully in his like five, you know, basically five basic strata of the unconscious mind. Right. Relationship of subtle body to unconscious mind, unconscious processes, yeah. and how this ties into the mix. Yeah, great. I want to go back because you had mentioned this point around are the subtle bodies outside of us or the inside of us? And I actually asked one of my teachers in this space, um, Kurt Leland, um, this question or, you know, it came up in a conversation. I was there with him at the time and he, you know, made a really cool integral move. He said, yeah, you know, our mind tries to grasp what's going on here. And so the two main models are one, we think of them as auras, you know, surrounding, you know, like there's the etheric body, then the astral body, then the, you know, mental body, and that they kind of go out, right? And you often see this in different energy books, right? Where there's the the figure and they have these kind of lines going around and those are the other bodies. And, and he says, and then, you know, so that's kind of like the like the Russian doll image. The other is that they're they're within you and you go deeper into them. And he says they're both right. They're just different ways that our mind can work with the paradoxical, non-local, non-temporal nature of the subtle energetic systems we have, right? So, it's, and some teachers will maybe emphasize one, you know, and ignore or dismiss the other. He said, but you know, both are accurate and fine, right? They're 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 different ways of understanding, you know, the the subtle bodies. You know? So, so that's one thing. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing that is happening is, you know, with the James Webb telescope, with these predictions that, 
you know, the moons around Neptune and Jupiter and Saturn likely have um, at least simple life, if not complex life on them, right? Like at a global level, level, we're going out, we're exploring the cosmos in a physical sense. And, and we're, we're at the point where we're realizing that other planetary systems most likely absolutely do contain biological life of some sort, and that some of that might even have evolved into intelligence life. And so we're going out, right? But it's redefining how we understand ourselves as human beings, right? Even Elon Musk making his plans to go to Mars is forcing us to consider what does it mean to be human, right? You know, and what would it look like, or, you know, to have a group of 100 people go live on Mars, right? You know, or like, you know, or there's, you know, current plans and talk of a permanent moon base, right? And a number of countries are kind of working to vie for that stake in the ground, right? So that we would have people living on, on the moon permanently, right? For different tours, right? So this whole process of EXO, of going out, is also this massive redefinition of humanity. And so I find that very fascinating. In a similar kind of way, the... How I got into EXO was I was going really deep into the fairy traditions and working with the intelligences associated with natural processes and um, ecosystems. And, you know, and the more I went kind of into the earth, if you will, the more I kept popping out into the galactic. And this was very confusing to me. It's like I was going in, but I was finding myself out in the cosmos. Right. So I think it's another example of this doubleness of like, if you go in, you're going to find the out. If you go out, you know, you're going to redefine humanity, right? It's like the, these things are inextricably linked just as mind and matter are inextricably linked. And the sooner we kind of come to terms with that and start exploring how that is, the better, right? In terms of this point around the body, I think this gets really interesting in the unconscious because what I'm noticing is that we have the physical body and the physical body contains physical traumas. The etheric body contains certain types of energetic, you know, um, traumas. And like when you get a massage, for instance, someone's massaging your, your thigh and you start having this vivid memory of when you were 10 and you're like, what's the link between them loosening up the muscles in my thigh and me having this really vivid memory that I haven't thought of forever, right? You know, it, we start to realize that memory is not just in the brain. Memory is distributed throughout the whole body, right? And the whole energetic system is somehow connected to our whole set of memories. And, you know, and we, we don't, no one understands memory. <laughs> We're like, we, we, what do we do with that? We don't know anything about memory, basically. Um, and so each body has a different kind of unconscious, right? right? So if we have nine bodies, those who love shadow work, they have a new task, right? <laughs> have you done the shadow work with your astral body? Have you done your shadow work with your buddhic body, right? And some of it's like karma, right? Because at the astral level, you're really dealing with, you know, kind of, you know, like uh, past life stuff more. Uh, at the causal body, you're dealing more at the soul level. You know, so there's different kinds of karmas, patterns, blockages, unconscious shadow content appropriate for that level of being, Right. So every layer of being within that multi body, subtle body system needs to be purified and needs to be cleared out. And so there's different kinds of unconscious content connected to each of those layers. 
every time you run on these things, it's like, holy crap. I mean, this is the, this is what's so wonderful hanging with you. I, I have this whole list of questions, Sean. Oh my god! I've asked, I've asked one. Oh my god! Like, like hey, that's screw it, screw it. That's that's all. all. Right. But let me let me just say a couple of things because I mean I just love this crap. So, yeah, what you say this, this is really important because there, there's another thing that we've been circumambulating here. Then now maybe we can make it a little bit more overt, which is the center of the whole Buddhist mandala, which is emptiness. Mm. I mean, emptiness, much ado about nothing, right? Everything we're talking about here is basically working with this because fundamentally, what, what do they say? You know, this the great um, teaching that without emptiness, nothing is possible. With emptiness, everything is possible. And we're talking about every possibility, right? This is this is a marvelous exposition of the malleability, the expressivity, the power, the expressive thermonuclear power of emptiness to shine in all these incredible ways. So I wanted to throw this into the mix because this is actually very, again, very practical. Is that what you say completely resonates with my experience? What when when you engage in this deep inner journey? So that we talked about you talked about earlier about going to the gym and working out. Yeah. Well, in a certain way, we're working in when yeah. we're doing right. stuff, right? Yeah, and so when we go deep, deep within ourselves, as you know, one way to look at the Tibetan word for Buddhist um, transliterated nonpa insiders, those mm-hmm. who realize this is an inside job. So what I've discovered that totally connects to this is you go very, very, very deep into the very center of yourself through deep formless meditations, through the nocturnal meditations, and then fundamentally, again, this is what happens at death. Fundamentally, you go in and you're going to find nothing, nothing, emptiness. But then in like this this kind of mental, cognitive, spiritual Mobius strip, that, that, that then leads to the simultaneity of emptiness and form, emptiness and fullness. You actually, when you come when you come in and, dis- and discover the centerless center of yourself, you become nothing. Yeah. Literally, at the same time, simultaneously, you become everything. And this is exactly the unity in sutra language. Emptiness is form. Form is emptiness in the Heart Sutra. In tantric language, this is the unity of luminosity replaces form at the level of tantra. This is the unity of luminosity and emptiness. Yeah. And so this is perfect. You come into the center of yourself, you realize there's no thing there. By becoming no thing, you become everything. Yeah. And therefore, talk about right view. You have nothing to lose in a certain way and everything to look forward to on the spiritual path. If you just let go of this constipated form of development that we call ego, because this is a pretty good swap, man. Pretty good swap. Putin doesn't need to conquer Ukraine like we talked last time. He is Ukraine, Right. right. Trump doesn't need to conquer the world. He is the world. And so when you go into the center of yourself, you become nothing, you become everything. That's a pretty good deal. I will take that swap if you understand the commerce that's involved here. And so the kid talk about right view. Okay, I'm willing to go in deep, discover I'm nothing by becoming nothing. I become everything. Um, So I, I really wanted to put an exclamation point on that. This whole notion, oh my God, how bloody brilliant. Each body has its own unconsciousness, and therefore the shadow work, right. the three, two, one, <laughs> right? The shadow work. Holy right. moly! You know, now you have all these marvelous levels, and on one level, to me, I, you know, I, like we talked about last time, this can be almost like TMI, overwhelming. It's like, holy crap! What do I do with this? I find when I roll with this, I mean, I just want to sing and dance and go hug a tree. I mean, this is just so bloody cool about the radiant manifest display of the phenomenal world yeah. that your work just so dazzlingly brings to the table 
and challenges us. How 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 big is our banquet table? How much room do we have for these phenomena, these experiences? And so I, I again, I just love this crap, man. You you really are my inner Neil deGrasse Tyson, dude. <laughs> well, I, I yeah, I, I mean, this is so much kind of what I get so excited about is like this recognition of combining the path of freedom and fullness or emptiness and luminosity in a way that for me, because I'm like straddling two worlds, like I have my, you know, freedom, emptiness, Tibetan Buddhist kind of background. And then I have my, you know, occult magic, you know, hermetic background. And, and obviously the Tibetan tradition, just as one example, has room for both, right? It's a path of freedom and fullness. But I think there's a way in which the Western practitioners, as I said, they've kind of gutted the, the fullness and the luminosity in terms of all these phenomenon, right? Like they only will deal with the Sambodakaya if it's nice and tiny and clean. And, you know, like it's like they, they don't want to get into Bigfoot. They don't want to get into fairies. They don't want to get into angels. They don't want to get into ETs. The world is a much more interesting place when we recognize that all those beings seem to have some kind of phenomenal existence, right? And they seem to want to interact with human beings. And those interactions, historically and contemporaneously, are quite interesting when you read them and learn about them or talk to people who have had them. Like, it's a highly populated, intelligent cosmos. And this is why I call it a wild cosmos, because it is so effing wild that there are all these different kinds of beings and more and they're all running around and they're all kind of some of them don't care much for humans and could you know are not interested in us some of us some of them begrudgingly are and some of them are very interested in us and so it's a whole interesting kind of cultural exchange and it's like there's joy in that there's there's so much like just fabulous wondrous amazement at we live in a multidimensional multiverse that contains so many different expressions of intelligence. And we have a host of practices and traditions that guide us with cultivating the perceptual and communication capacities to interact, benefit them, and receive benefit from those beings, right? And those beings can be along the full spectrum of ontological substantiation, right? Like they could be our imagination, they could be a more field. They could be an archetype. They could be a real being in another dimension. Like They are all of those things, right? And it's not always clear when they're one and when they're another, right? And then that's where discernment comes in. How do we know whether it was this or that? And I find that really fascinating. Like, how do I cultivate that capacity to discern and discriminate? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The other thing, playfully, is in a very... Um... Really, real way, this is we're opening interstate commerce, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> interstate <laughs> commerce between different states of right. to increase profit, to increase right. benefit, to, to increase intimacy. Beautiful. This is about intimacy with reality, yeah. right? Like, how, how could that not be the ultimate commitment? I want to have more intimacy with all of reality, yeah, and all of its emptiness and all of its fullness. I mean that what that's really just absolutely fantastic. I think at one level maybe this is really the inner meaning of tantric sex. I mean the, the ultimate intercourse. Talk about non-duality, the ultimate intercourse between self and other, inner outer, all these doublenesses things that yes, on on a relative list, uh, relative provisional level have their independent autonomous existence, but on another level are all one play. And so one thing I did want to say earlier that could be of some interest 
before we do finally, not finally, but I do want to say a little bit or ask you a little bit about psychedelics. <laughs> yeah. what, what's actually really important here, Sean, I think this, this is, again, in the notion of doubleness, um, complementarity and physics, all that kind of thing, um, non-Boolean approaches to reality. I think it's very important to remember that when we talk about the trikaya, let's let's use that Buddhist framework, even though many other traditions have analogous forms, there is this kind of sequential involutionary unfolding then evolutionary and um, infolding, where basically you go from subtle to gross. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, from causal to subtle to gross, and then gross to subtle to causal. Yeah. But I think another way that's really important that sometimes it's forgotten is that not only do these um, kayas manifest in a sequential way, they manifest in a simultaneous way. And this is actually important because otherwise what happens is a subtle cosmological dualism mm. that somehow feels we need to get other than here, that somehow, oh, this is Dharmakaya, this is bad because it's reified. Right. Somehow I have to get to the Dharmakaya. Yeah. No, it's a, it's a matter of recognition. The, the, like our friend Zvi Jalom says so beautifully, the path is perceptual, mm. not actual. This is important because it empowers the immediacy of the whole deal. That if you relate to things properly, seeing the openness of what's happening right now, the spaciousness, that is the Dharmakaya. Yeah. Seeing the energetic, radiant, luminous display, that is the Sambhogakaya. Seeing the articulate form touching it, that is the Nirmanakaya. And so we provisionally centrifuge them out almost as a heuristic, as a way to understand them. But fundamentally, it's the Svabhavakakaya. It's Turiyatita in Hindu language. It's the union or the intercourse of all those I think this is important to throw into the mix because otherwise you can get lost in some some hierarchies and dualisms that could be a little bit um, misleading for people. No, I think those are really good points and cautions. And it's partly why I love this frame that I use around multidimensional embodiment that, you know, in my in the teaching that I do, you know, around this and work with students around these topics. You know, there's often this idea of going out of body, right? You want to go out of body. Well, for me, we have to simultaneously go into the body. We have to get really anchored in the physical body. We have to build capacity with our physical body. And so to the extent we're going to go out of body and go and um, we need to be equally in the body. So, you know, if you think of, you know, one thing that's interesting, like if you look at Robert Monroe's work, oh, yeah. he describes how he originally started getting out of body and we now would understand or think of it as his first out of body experiences. He was in the etheric body. Mm -hmm. Then he learned, so he's in the etheric body and then he learns to get out of that body and get into his astral body. Right. And then at a certain point he learns to get out of that body and get into the mental or causal body. And he, and so it's like multiple out of bodies, right? It's like you're getting out of more and more different bodies. But so like, as you get farther out on that limb, you need to have an equal amount of somatic grounding and, and, and connection with the nirmanakaya, right? And so I think that's really, really important. And so really kind of shifting this view of like, oh, I want to get out of body. Like, okay, great. But you also need to get in body, right? And, and you need to do somatic work. You know, you need to look at your diet. You need to exercise. You need to, you know, be comfortable with just basic somatic experiencing of the physical and, you know, etheric body. And then when you learn to, it's like, you know, um, Carlos Castaneda's assemblage point idea. Yeah, exactly. When you learn to access these different bodies. I can sit here talking to you and I can cycle into the etheric body 
or I can cycle into the astral body, or I can cycle into the causal or buddhic body, right? So I'm in my physical body, but I'm I'm just like shifting my consciousness because I've learned to access that particular subtle body energetic state, and then I'm accessing it and then interacting from that place. So so you can do that in a waking state. You don't just need to be in a meditative or a dream space, right? So there's ways in which we can stay awake, stay in our body, and access these various bodies without necessarily doing the more traditional kind of, you know, dream yogas or astral travel or so forth. So there's a lot of different ways to to be embodied, embodied. Fantastic, fantastic. And, and so I, I meant to ask this earlier. To what extent is it important to centrifuge out um, the difference between phenomenological subtle body and so-called anatomical physiological subtle body? Because that's yet another thing to throw into the mix. Because again, when we talk about, we talk about subtle body, this is a, a massive polysemous term, multivalent term. I mean, right. there's so many reference to this. Yeah. So talk a little bit about the importance of centrifuging out phen- phenomenological subtle body, which would be what? Thoughts, emotions, feelings, right. kind of in conjunction, I wouldn't say versus, but what we've been talking a little bit more about, maybe this is my misunderstanding, of more kind of physiological anatomic subtle body. Right. When I think this is the where the pioneering research is going to go is, is understanding that relationship, right, between the, you know, the kind of physiological aspects of the subtle body or matter on the one hand and like the kind of energetic thought-based emotional, you know, kind of experiences of the subtle body, right? Because again, it's like we have Nirmanakaya and Dharmakaya and then Sambhogakaya is the glue that connects the two. And, you know, acupuncture, Ayurvedic meditation, I mean, medicine, uh, Tibetan meditation, uh, medicine, you know, they have different ways of trying to understand and describe it. But what's interesting, when you look at the Tibetan system, the Tibetan medicine system describes the um, subtle bodies differently than the esoteric dharmic practitioners. It's not reconciled. They're essentially two separate systems because they've used different methods to understand, investigate, and document the subtle body systems. So the Tibetan medicine system is a different map of the subtle bodies than the Tibetan meditative system. You know, and so that's very interesting within the same culture. And there's these big debates about who's right and how to kind of reconcile it, right? So, so I think there's a lot of work to be done around kind of the physiological medicine healing side of this and the esoteric, phenomenological, meditative, contemplative side of it and how they kind of sync up at the different layers of the, the different bodies, you know, is, is good research yet to be done. Do you, do you think, um, complete conjecture here, do you think that there will ever be ever be a way to put somebody in a spiritual fMRI, right? And actually, I mean, we have curly in photography. We have the sort of stuff that's a little bit suggestive of these. But do you do you see a way in the future where these energetics could actually somehow be uh, measured in in a, a so-called scientific way? Not not again, not in any way to give some kind of scientific supremacy to that particular aspect of the scientific right. method. But I think you get the idea. Do you think there's any hope for that? I think we will make some more progress. I mean, like you mentioned, Curlin Photography, you know, at CIHS where I'm at, um, the founder, Hiroshi Motoyama, developed an AMI device that measures subtle energies. So I think there 
but I wonder to what extent those might just capture the etheric body and maybe the astral body. And so just kind of the first few layers of the energetic system. And I, I have some questions and doubts about whether tech will be able to, you know, kind of penetrate into the finer layers of the subtle body system. Now, it might be when we get into quantum computing, um, there might be whole new modes of computational and, and imaging and per, per, perceptival, you know, kind of technological capacities that we were just not even yet um, able to imagine. Um, but I, I, I suspect that a lot of this will remain out of the grasp of a technological capture. And I mean, in a certain way, it's, it's that's not necessarily a bad thing at all, right? I mean, the most important thing is the investigation, the interiority to actually invite, feel for yourself. Because when when you when you first make, I mean, I remember very clearly the first time I discovered chakra systems with quite literally a broken heart, right? There, there's there's incredible power to actually tuning into that, having having almost literally tuning into that understanding that, registering it. And so as we start to wrap up, and again, this is hard for me to say goodbye because there's so much more to talk about. Two things. Um, one is give us a little bit of, of your current view of the place of plant medicine, psychedelics, because as you know, this is there's a renaissance going on. I mean, here in Denver, 20, 20 minutes from where I live, 10,000 people are coming this summer, three yeah. to 400 presenters, the MAPS conference. This is a real yeah. big deal. So a little bit about the role, your understanding, your interpretation, your view, your endorsement yeah. of these entheogens, whatever you want to call them, as legitimate, the promise and peril, legitimate opportunities for psycho-spiritual transformation, and also, once again, the surgeon's general warning. Because we don't want to mess this up again, right? We had a chance. Nixon came in, shut it down. We're going to have another chance. It's happening. The studies are coming out everywhere. We don't want to F it up yet again. Yeah. So a little bit about that. I'm very excited about the psychedelic renaissance. Um, you know, I've, I've, I've played in that space a little bit. Um, I have a lot of friends and colleagues who engage it, you know, in, in a very deep way. I have a lot of therapist friends who are using it with clients. Um, I think the applications for addressing depression, anxiety, trauma are amazing. It, it, it doesn't surprise me in the least that these sacred medicines are and can be used in service of healing and transformation in those ways. And again, I think part of it's because it's activating subtle bodies and, and bringing the subtle body dimensions into the healing process. So I think where I feel cautionary is around how the medical system isn't really capable of acknowledging or recognizing the subtle energy aspects of it. So I think there's going to be some big misses there. Um, that maybe, you know, clinicians and practitioners might be able to shore that up a little bit. Um, but I get excited when I see John Hopkins, you know, running research, looking at um, DMT entities and, and really asking the question, what's the ontological status of these beings that people are reporting on, on DMT and taking very seriously the reality and what's the benefit of these beings and how are the interactions described by people? Right. And, you know, one thing that's very interesting is that different medicines, different psychedelics seem to access kind of different realms or landscapes. So there are there are some beings that you encounter across all psychedelics. Right. There's certain kinds of beings that that show up in reports um, like gray aliens. Yeah. We find gray aliens everywhere. 
right? So, you know, there's a lot we could explore why that is, but just as a data point, they show up everywhere. They even show up in shamanic circles. They show up in Theravon meditators. You know, it's like, like gray aliens are just everywhere. DMT entities like, you know, machine transforming elves only show up with DMT. Um, Mother Ayahuasca only shows up with Ayahuasca. You know, the the encounters with jaguars and snakes and stuff also seem to only show up with ayahuasca. So certain psychedelics activate and open up encounters with certain beings that only seem to be connected to the realms that those psychedelics give you access to. So I find this interesting that there's, you know, they're like different doorways into different parts of the multiverse, right? And then how is it certain beings seem to be able to travel across and through all those realms, so I think there's a whole kind of cosmology that we have to start to consider, like to explain and understand the kinds of realms, landscapes, and beings that are encountered in different psychedelic experiences. And so I'm very much against the psychologization of those experiences and just making it therapeutic. I feel, based on my own experiences and just reading the testimonies closely, people are accessing other realms and interacting with other beings. Yeah, we can always play the emptiness card on everything, right. right? But when we play it on those phenomena simply to dismiss them, I think we're really, you know, doing our contemplative traditions a disservice. So what does it mean to open up to the actual phenomenological and ontological substantiation of these beings and these realities? And why is going to them healing? What is it about the human body and the human psyche that when we take these medicines— and we have these experiences, why is that more often than not when in the right set and setting, healing, transformative, and powerful, right? I mean, of course, there's bad trips. There, there are a lot of bad experiences that come along. But like you said, surgeon's warning, you know, like this isn't, you know, don't play with matches and expect not to get burned. You know, it's like there, there are precautions, right? But it's like, so it's fascinating to me that there's something about us that we are oriented towards the cosmos. We are oriented towards, you know, a multidimensional multiverse. And there's something very satisfying. I think it comes back to the intimacy we were talking about. There's something very satisfying about making contact with those realities when we live in a highly um, atheist, secular, materialist, reductionistic, capitalistic society. We are so friggin' alienated from the mystery right? And these start to reintroduce that into our lives. And so I really am excited about them supporting this cultural shift from a monophasic um, approach to consciousness to a polyphasic approach to consciousness that recognizes the wisdom and import that these other states of consciousness and the experiences we have in them can bring into our day-to-day life. I, I mean, just high five on that all the way across. I, 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 just a couple of comments and then correlative questions. I think part of the healing takes place um, because healing is holing. Is you know, is the more we open, the more we, and that's what that's what literally physical healing is is a, is basically you're talking about memory. That's what healing is. It's remembering. Mm. It's basically letting the body do its magical thing and literally remembering from a broken bone to a cancer. It doesn't matter. Remembering wholeness. Exactly. Healing is wholeing. And so when you open, you're opening up to the multi multi multidimensional multiverse. 
you're actually integrating holding more with the vast expanse of, of your mind and reality. I think the healing takes place largely because of that. A couple of things here. One is we always have to remember, man, we are always on drugs. We're on drugs right now. We're on serotonin. We're on acetylcholine. We're on norepinephrine. We're on all these neurotransmitters now. And then you step outside of that to the metaphorical drugs. We're on all kinds of psychological drugs that addict us into these particular states. So this, this again, helps us dislodge the even the physiological seeming supremacy of the state. That, hey, hey I, I never thought of that, man. I'm on drugs right now. Mm-hmm. I have, I see this particular reality because of these neurotransmitters or anything in my oh. brain. I, that's my default. I take that to be reality. No, you're on drugs. That's the drug. That's the reality that's disclosed by that drug. The other thing is, I love this stuff, man, that this is, um, I, was re- I was listening to one of the MAPS um, podcasts. Uh, uh, the, um, I think it's Timothy Leary's um, son, Zach. Leary does this thing. And he was, he was interviewing this guy. Check this out. This guy was doing 50 grams. Of oh I mean, five grams is considered heroic dose. Right. This guy was doing 50 I mean, like, are you kidding me? And 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 he was talking about. He goes, he goes. You know, I I tell you, I enter these domains, these entities. They're there. I Waiting for these alter. Yeah, I, I, exactly. I enter these realities, and these entities are actually. I mean, they are again as real or as unreal as we are. So, the thing that that again, um, coming back to this endo exo narrative that we had. It's very easy, you know, for the for the Western scientists to say, oh, it's all just the neurochemistry of your brain and it's all a construct of your brain. And that's all completely endo. So what I love about this stuff and what you're saying is that these agents and others is coerced, meditation does it, death does it. These break down that that um, duality, the endo exo barrier. Um, but to what extent, maybe say a little bit about this, to what extent is it important to still have that boundary between endo and exo and kind of rolling a little bit in the world of shamanism, wow. to what extent is it necessary to have protection? Because as you know, yeah. in the world, in the worlds that we roll in, I mean, I do protector practices. I create protector mandalas. I do all these sorts of things because some of these agents, again, they're, they're not all benevolent. Some of them are confused. Some of them are a little bit more malicious, malevolent, and they right. can they run havoc with you, especially in the shamanistic and, and Tibetan worlds. So maybe say a little bit more about the importance. On one level, we're trying to break down the boundary between endo, exo, inner and outer. But on another level, boundaries are important. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think, you know, there are a lot of strong opinions out there about protective practices and people say you don't need them and people say you absolutely need them. And uh, I say precautionary principle, you know, use them, you know, like it's like these these are dynamic places you're entering and yeah we we need to have protective practices and there's there's a lot of different ones and you know and it's more about you know intention and um and just thoughtfulness and 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 kind of being humble and you know so so but yeah absolutely we need you know by and large i think we need to be engaged in different types of protective and clearing practices um before during and after um, these adventures in consciousness. In terms of the endo, you know, exo, you know, even eso, exo, for me, so much of it's about differentiation and integration. 
right? And so differentiating, you know, there's something powerful in differentiating because then you can integrate um, at a whole new scale of wholeness, right? And so I, and I, and I, I think at heart, I'm an explorer, like I want, and I'm curious. Um, and, and growth and development occurs through the process of differentiation and integration, yeah. right? And so kind of like going back to the multiple subtle bodies by being able to differentiate differentiate our energetic system into multiple subtle bodies and then working through the shadow and unconscious content associated with each one, right? That's a high level of differentiation that enables a whole new level of healing and integration, right? And so you can be, the more you differentiate and then integrate those differentiations, the, the more of reality you're holding within you, right? And so, so it's like you want to keep crossing those boundaries you know, mindfully and, and building open channels across these distinctions. Um, because I think in a sense, you know, it's like, this is like the pre-trans thing. Like there's, you know, pre-rational states, you know, um, and there's trans-rational modes of being. And my sense of the difference is that the pre-rational, you know, or the pre-personal, there's not much differentiation and there's not much integration. And whereas at the transrational, um, there's a lot of differentiation and a lot of integration. And so there's there's something uniquely human about our ability to be on paths of differentiation and integration. And, and, and I feel that most of those who we'd point to as enlightened masters in one sense or another are ones who have been on a path of differentiating and integrating a lot of different layers of, of reality and, and what it means to be human. And they've managed to contain all of that in a coherent kind of way, right? And then we're drawn to that, um, you know? And so, so, so those are some initial thoughts on those points. Really rich, really rich. Um, I mean, really, we, I gotta get you back. Um, I, I really, I have all these questions that I want to talk to you about. We hit on some really, really awesome stuff, but again, your mind is so rich. There's so many places to go. I want to give you the opportunity to talk a little bit about, in fact, this is where a lot of my questions were actually initially seated, this quite remarkable course that yeah. you're about to launch. This this is like, it sounds freaking awesome. So tell us a little bit about this um, so that my listeners can sign up and, and um, ride this journey with you. Because when I went through it, it was like, whoa, this is going to be one great surf. <laughs> yeah, so you know, if people have been engaged, intrigued, or even freaked out by our conversation, then I absolutely invite them to join me for, you know, the six month course, it's called Exo Studies Foundations. And we're gonna spend two weeks on a key concept in Exo Studies that I've been developing. And so if you go to exostudies.org and choose courses and then go to the current course, Exo Studies Foundations, you'll come to the course page and on that it lists the 15 kind of core exo studies concepts that I've been developing over the last few years, we've touched on directly and indirectly a number of them in our conversation today, but people can read through that. And if that looks interesting, then join me. There's already 50 people, almost 60 actually signed up for the course. It officially starts in April, April 3rd. Um, so you can just sign up there on the website. Um, as soon as you sign up, you get invited into the Slack space. There's already a lively discussion with those who are in already. Um, we're having next week on Thursday, we're having a pre-course Zoom call um, so people can connect and we can just kind of do introductions and stuff so that we really hit the ground running um, come April. And we meet on 
Tuesdays and Thursdays every week. Uh, Tuesdays at 1 p.m. Eastern, Thursdays at 8 p.m. Eastern. Some people are not able to make either of those every week. So they just listen to the recordings and just participate in the online Slack. Some people just watch the recordings and don't participate on the online Slack. Some people attend both calls each week, the whole six months, right? So it's up to you, whatever works with your schedule. Sometimes people participate a lot and then they disappear for, you know, a month or two and then they come back because they, you know, traveling with their family, you know. So it's a very flexible community of practice. And so it's going to be very intellectual and also very experiential. And I open each session with a meditation and we're really going to be looking at, you know, just what does it mean to be in a multidimensional multiverse at this moment on this planet? And it's going to be a wild ride. So check out the website just to see those 15 concepts. And if you're intrigued, come join me. Totally. Yeah, absolutely. I I only have one minor suggestion. I think you need to back the start date up two days. Right. Oh, April Fool's Day? (laughs) You should launch it on April Fool's Day, right? April 1st, right? So really, I'm left with so many things here. The the one final kind of overriding magical thing that you you hit on, there are so, so many, but this journey really fundamentally, it may seem sometimes like wildly esoteric, like WTF is this, what does this have to do with anything? It's all just intellectual masturbation or whatever. But I think on one level, what you said is really, really beautiful, that this is fundamentally about intimacy with reality. And if we don't really pay attention to that, I mean, that's fundamentally what we're looking for, whether we know it or not. That's the authentic gratification. Everything else we do is a substitute for that. And so in, in a very real way, you're you're hitting the, the hard essence of, of, of basically the whole shebang, why we do what we do, what are we really after? And so by opening, expanding our horizons, breaking away from our limited realities, we're opening ourselves to intimacy with reality altogether. And oh my gosh, I mean, that's a really wondrous, beautiful thing. Yeah. And it's, for me, it's what it's all about. And it's, it's super juicy and. And, you know, and part of what's so great about this course and this community practice that I'm going to be launching is it's very intimate. People share all their weird experiences, you know, and some people have weird experiences and don't share. It's not like you have to, but there's something powerful about being in a community and there's Christians and Buddhists and atheists and Marxists. It's like, we're a very dynamic, diverse group, right? Um, And the thing that brings us together is we've all had weird experiences, you know, and there's a lot of, you know, kind of, you know, you know, tried and true, just kind of, you know, regular Tibetan meditators. And then there's people doing psychedelics and there's people who's doing both, right? And so it's a real interesting mix of practices and us sharing these encounters that we've had, these experiences, and they're very intimate. And it creates a very intimate space when you feel authentically witnessed and heard and sharing those experiences or just witnessing other people sharing their experiences. So it's it's very profound and, and intimacy really is uh, the beating heart of it. In the, in the type of living classroom, this kind of quantum right. learning, right? This this connectivity of consciousness that, that goes along with a cohort like that is, is really yeah. a magical thing. So, Sean, my friend, wow, awesome stuff. So much fun to hang yeah. with you. We'll do it again. We'll do it. It's just like so rich. <laughs> really, I have my whole pad here. So yeah. many stuff we didn't get to. But that just shows the wealth of your mind, the wealth of the universe itself, and mm-hmm. just how much stuff there is to talk about. So, um Big thanks for joining us. Um, Thank you, Andrew. You know, join in with with Sean's course. It's going to be a rock and second course. And until next time, my friend, much love, and we'll do it again.
All right, big hugs. Well, that's it for today. Thanks for joining us. And thanks once again to Sean for sharing his extraordinary wisdom with us. We hope you're enjoying the Edge of Mind podcast as much as we enjoy making it. Please spread the word, rate the podcast, give us a review, and subscribe to it if you haven't already. It's one way to invite more people into this community and into conversations in the fields of science, philosophy, psychology, spirituality, and the arts. Thank you.